name is Suzanne Legrand, and this is Disobedient Femmes. Today, my guest is Apricot Irving, who is an award-winning writer, teacher, journalist, community activist, and the author of The Gospel of Trees, a lyrical meditation on ecology, loss, and the tangled history of missions in Haiti, which won the 2019 Oregon Book Award. Welcome. Thank you. The Gospel of Trees is a memoir of growing up as a missionary kid in Haiti. You and your family moved to Haiti in 1982 when you were six years old and you left when you were 15. To start with, could you tell us a little bit about what it was like to grow up in Haiti? Well, stepping off the plane that first time landing, it was... um, an infusion of color and noise and sensory smells. And it was after the the quiet desert where we lived on a trailer just down the hill from my grandma's on a date ranch. It was everything that that experience had not been. There were people everywhere. There was uh, constantly um, things to be heard. There were these bugle call bus horns going by at all hours of the day and night. There were roosters that crowed all night. There were bicycles clanging past on the road. Um, I think I found it delightful and overwhelming, but I think I wanted to move towards that energy as a kid. And I didn't understand the layered complexity of it. It was just this amazing place that I looked at through the lens of a six-year-old. And it was like, wow, look at those brightly colored buses. Wow, look at those amazing houses. They're yellows and pinks and oranges. And um, So as a kid, I thought it was the best place in the world to grow up. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people have an idea about missionaries. And I think the typical idea about missionaries is that they're naive, they're old-fashioned, uh, a version of a 19th century um, colonialist who's bent on saving the natives, right? That's the picture that we have. Your parents' reasons for becoming missionaries were more complex. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about why your parents decided to become missionaries and go to Haiti. Yeah, They were recruited to go as missionaries. They were organic vegetable farmers in the desert, California. And someone at the church that they'd newly started attending, because their marriage was falling apart, and mom had this amazing encounter with God in a rocking chair. And so she went to church. We all followed. um, And about a year or so into that uh, religious experience, they got recruited to go run this agricultural center in the north of Haiti. And their first response is, oh, no, (laughs) or where's Haiti? (laughs) They really had no idea. So naive, yes. Um, It was part of a larger movement in the American Baptist churches to have uh, the missionaries who would be recruited have practical, pragmatic things to offer. So there were either nurses or doctors at this hospital. My dad did agricultural work. And so he was asked to run this um, this center for agriculture in the north of Haiti for that year and then really loved it. And so we went back to live on this other missionary compound, and he ran the agricultural nursery there. Um, but then and then that compound 
all of the other kids that I grew up with and went to school with, their parents were either Haitian pastors in the church or they were doctors or nurses at the hospital. It's interesting that your father's reason for going to Haiti had less to do with converting and more to do with nature and his love of trees. And that's the title, The Gospel of Trees. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I say in the book that his first and earliest and the most unshakable conversion was to protecting wilderness, wild space, the natural world. When he was a child, hiking up from the desert into the Idlewild Mountains and for the first time being among trees and squirrels leaping overhead and and all of this green. And he wanted to devote his life to protecting the wilderness, which then got expanded to planting trees, to uh, doing organic vegetable farming. And so Haiti really was part of that for him, a, a deep sense of um, having something to give that was concrete and and needed because because of the history of colonization in Haiti, there's extraordinary deforestation. So much was lost, starting with you know the time of Columbus and all of the hardwoods that were stripped and then the plantation system and the, the soil that was depleted by these intensive crops like sugarcane and indigo. And, and so now Haiti struggles. Um, the soil is depleted. There's widespread deforestation. And so for him to be able to bring what he knew about growing vegetables and planting trees, it, it satisfied a deep sense of being able to do something useful with his life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that sense of being useful is is really interesting. You, you talk about that at the beginning of the book, the desire to make a difference. <laughs> Yes, it's so seductive. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a desire that many of us can identify with, wanting to make a difference, to help, to make the world better in some way. How did that work out for your dad? (laughs) (laughs) It's so messy, especially in a place like Haiti. I Haiti, after the earthquake, had 10,000 aid organizations that were registered there. I'm sure there are more now. Um, And these are all organizations uh, of people wanting to help, wanting to come in and make things better. And that might be through agriculture, like it was for my parents. It might be through building schools. It might be through medical work, uh, roads or wells or you name it. There's there's a long list of things that as an outsider, one might look and say, oh, I can help with this. But there's a lot of problems with that coming in with grand ideas of what someone else, another community needs when we as outsiders know so little about the long history that led to where we are now. Um, And I think that my parents certainly fell into um, the trap where what we tried to offer um, was not really what was most useful to the people around us. And we brought with us this unconscious, unrecognized arrogance that, of course, our ideas were better. And there was that... um, 
that layer of superiority and condescension that was present in our newsletters, that was present in our interactions and conversations. And so that layer of unrecognized, unacknowledged, maybe even contempt at times, really um, was problematic, as you can imagine. And when I took my kids to Haiti for the first time, it was like, okay, darlings, here's how we're not approaching Haiti. We're not coming in to say, oh, wow, my life is so much better than yours. Gosh, let me help you. It's like, how would that feel if someone came to where we lived, which has plenty of problems and plenty of wonderful things about it. But if someone came in from the outside and just in a really quick cursory glance looked around and said, oh, wow, you know, my life's a lot better than yours. Here, let me help you. It's just an icky feeling. It helps no one in the end. And so when we went together, it's like, look, this is our goal. We're going to ask people what they find beautiful about where they live, what they are proud of in their community, why they love living here. And there are 10,000 answers to that question. And so I think were those 10,000 aid organizations to approach with something more like that posture, different things could be possible. But when we come in as outsiders with an agenda of what we are going to do and how we are going to leave our mark and our ego is so tied up in that, it gets really problematic really fast. And we end up eclipsing the small local grassroots uh, visionaries who are doing their own work to make their neighborhoods better. And we come in with more money and more power and more connections and just obliterate what is good and what already exists. Is that in some ways an exclamation, sorry, is that in some ways an explanation for how it is that Haiti has been known as a very poor country and over time has gotten poorer? Yes. (laughs) There's a really, I mean, there are many brilliant analyses of this, but one is called Dead Aid. And it's really looking at the ways that the current system of, um, of aid to poorer countries actually makes prolongs poverty and creates the conditions for that to continue because it creates a system of dependency. For example, just after the earthquake, I went down to Haiti and visited a number of different places, and there were good things that were were being attempted. Um, There was a a project in Gonaive area, which had been devastated by floods uh, in 2004, And the watershed is almost entirely denuded now. And there's the risk of yet another devastating flood, which could literally take out the town of Gonaive again. And I think it was 60,000 refugees from Port-au-Prince had moved back to the Artiboni area that's in this watershed. And so all these recently relocated refugees were once again going to be at risk if the floods came again. And so the goal was to create a project that would put trees or terraces um, on these hillsides to protect the watershed, which is all a wonderful thing. Um, Part of the problem was, is that all the people that are heading the project are outsiders. They're not just Americans, but Americans are well represented. Um, And then the people at the lower levels of these aid organizations 
are Haitian people who speak multiple languages, who might have multiple advanced degrees, who are very knowledgeable about their country and its history and, you know, the dynamics of communities. Um, and I heard one story about how one of these aid organizations had a book where complaints were written down. Like if people from these small villages said, look, here's the ways in which this project is not being done well, it's not serving us, it would go into that complaint book, it would be logged, and no one ever read it again. It didn't get reported further up the chain to people with decision-making power. And so the organizations, these these well-funded NGOs would come in and have a project that might last 18 months or a few years, and then they're going to pick up and leave and go to the next country with the next crisis, leaving all these well-educated really knowledgeable, young, ambitious, visionary Haitian people once again out of a job. And it just feels so defeating. Um, by contrast, I got to visit this little tiny community up in the mountains, and they had, 25 years earlier, realized that when people grew up from these small villages, they would leave, get an education, and not return. And they knew that in the cities, they were looked down upon as country backwards people. Um, and they decided to create this um, cooperative, a peasant cooperative, to change their communities by having a garden that was cooperatively farmed. And when the produce was sold, then that small bit of income would pay for someone from the group to go and say, take a class on... Um, childhood uh, nutrition. And so that person would come back with the knowledge and share for all the villages, all the people in the cooperative, how to make sure there's protein in the diet so the kids don't have kwashiorkor, so that there's not like this really devastating and ongoing lack of nutrition. And so that was done. Great. Like knowledge is disseminated. And then one project after another, after another, and they would sometimes partner with larger NGOs it's a very arid region, and so the rains, when they come, come on a rush and then are gone. And so they partnered with a German NGO that was able to help subsidize uh, water tanks, water catchment systems, for every home that wanted to participate in this project. And it was still a sizable contribution that each household had to make um, for their portion of it. But it was an extraordinary high percentage of Households within this large, now quite large area that all decided to say, yes, we want to commit financially and we'll partner with this NGO. And it was a, a kind of success rate that, that NGOs dream of. Um, and it was all done by this cooperative on their own. And um, the pride with which they talked about their community and what they had accomplished in these 25 years. And mind you, it's still a community where you can look around and there's kids... Um, Maybe wearing a T-shirt and not much else, barefoot. There's uh, maybe a trash, a bag of trash stuck in the crotch of a tree. There's chicken scratching in the dirt. It could be easy for an outsider to come in and say, oh, wow, my life is so much better than yours. Here, let me help you. But that was not how this community saw itself. There was such pride and such dignity. And there were other small communities that had heard about what they were doing that would come to them for advice about how do you organize? How do you begin something like this? And that kind of, um, of possibility for a community to, to take... Um, agency for their own
future and present, it's beautiful. And it's a little heartbreaking to think of how much that potential exists everywhere in Haiti and how much it's been eclipsed by an outsider coming in, an outside group saying, oh, I know what you need. Let me do this for you. And then let me bring down a whole group of college kids or, um, you know, well-meaning people. They call them the shirts, <laughs> all in their matching T-shirts, and they're going to build the building for this community and take a picture in front of it with the shovels and everything else. Meanwhile, there are really skilled masons in that community. There are people that would be glad to have, you know, be paid for their their labor. Uh, It's just, it's so maddening um, to see how often it goes awry. It's interesting. Sounds like what you're saying is that one of the legacies of colonialism this this idea of the white savior yeah is is really still at the heart of a lot of aid efforts and that's a problem it is i have a dear friend who's a poet um a fabulous haitian writer sonny tonami and he was we were talking last spring at a reading we did together and he was like yeah we have a saying it's yes blanc it's like oh you the outsider this you white person you have an idea what are we expected to say yes blah just whatever you say yes blah because what else can you do here's this person coming in with their ideas and their funding and their and it's painful and it's funny that it's like observed as a thing that happens all the time and it should not continue you had an interesting time as a missionary kid in that you were on one hand privileged very much so and on the other hand you were a permanent outsider in the country that you grew up in and you describe that as being an interesting vantage point in your book you wrote quote can be a great gift to be the outsider and to get it wrong most of the time to practice humility when I thought that I had the world all figured out I think that there's a lot of freedom on the other side of realizing that failure is a really wise teacher. That I think this myth that there is a way of doing it right puts a lot of pressure and there's a lot of heartache in trying to live up to some goal of perfection. And as a white woman of privilege, I can't do it right. I can't be one of the good ones. It's not, I'm not even sure anymore that there are good ones. There's just us flawed and fumbling and doing our best and apologizing, hopefully, um, when we get it wrong, which I do regularly. And so I think that recognition that it's okay to make a mess of things. If my goal is to learn, then I'm learning from having failed in those specific ways. And I can be more aware as I move through the world (laughs) post-failure. But the trying to keep myself... um, and everyone's good books and impress everyone that I'm that I'm fine, that I'm good, that I'm I'm on the side of, you know, benevolence or heroism or whatever. Like it's it's a myth and it's a destructive myth. And you know, I've heard people say that white people are more concerned about per- being perceived as good 
as opposed to actually doing good, right? Oh my gosh, because like my entire adolescence was this intense pressure on looking good, like not wearing dangly earrings that were too long and too distracting, not wearing too much makeup, not wearing a shirt that showed too much cleavage. It was so important that we looked a certain way, a skirt of a certain length if we were going out of the compound. And meanwhile, my dad and I are shouting at each other behind screen doors and screen windows and every one of our neighbors knows that we're screaming at each other. So it's not like the skirt of a certain length and the length of the earrings is fooling anybody. Everybody can tell that we really have no business trying to teach anyone about a moral life or (laughs) healthy family. We're just a mess, like most people, and we're fumbling along. And, And Dad has some things he can teach about trees, but in terms of us being any sort of moral icon, Forget it. It's such a crock. (laughs) And it's so freeing to get to the other side and go, oh, right. Like, let's not even waste any energy trying to keep up that facade. Let's just be human together. And you can see my flaws. You've seen them from the beginning. That's fine. I won't try to cover them up. And I'll just, like, let's move on, you know? You know, one of the things that's so wonderful about your book is that you do talk about the the flaws the complexity in your family the tensions and it's really interesting to me that your parents were very supportive of the book and willing to share their own diaries even to include the the difficulties in their marriage for example which is something that generally people don't want to talk about publicly and you've written that they did this partly because they wanted others to learn from their past mistakes. Yeah, it's true. I mean, they're people of deep religious faith, and there is in Christianity, there's a lot that's flawed and destructive in Christianity, and there's a lot that has the potential to be hopeful and um, to rebuild connections when it's broken. And so for my dad, he was with a bunch of men, and he was talking about this age in his marriage when he betrayed mom in this way and he wanted to share it as a way that other people could learn from and then he realized okay I need to tell my daughters about this and so (laughs) it was a memorable Christmas when we sent the kids to bed and dad said well I have something to share (laughs) um but it was interesting because even then I was in the process of writing the book he had given me his journals, and his journals were pretty spare. They were mostly about what trees, seeds got planted on a certain day. There was a caterpillar infestation in the manioc in somebody else's garden, you know, that kind of detail, whether it rained or not. But every once in a while, there would be something emotional and personal. And so his journal ended with the entry, Hugged Julila in a way I shouldn't have told Flip. And I kept journals, and I knew that that meant something significant, but I actually didn't have the courage to ask him about it. It was just something that I was holding in the back of my mind. And so when he decided to tell all of us at Christmas, he prefaced it by, well, here's something else for your book, Apricot. Those was his opening lines to us. And he said, you can come down and interview me. I'm happy to give you all the details. And so I did. It took me another year probably, but it was one of the most intense conversations I've had. It, it was very awkward. and um, But 
I learned a lot um, from both of my parents, from their willingness to to jettison <laughs> the facade and say, yep, here it is. Here's all the broken. Here's the vulnerability. It took my mom a lot longer to be willing to share her journals. Um, I was about 10 years into the process when she said, yeah, you can have mine too. And I was so grateful. I think she felt a lot of shame. Um, but I think any time you get to see someone's uh, regrets and doubts and fears, it, it creates a, a tenderness in you towards that person. To see someone in all their flawed complexity, it's like, oh, you're a lot more like me than I realized. So I think that was the gift of, of this book for me, is to be given that level of insight into my parents' vulnerabilities at that moment in Haiti and watching things crumble in the ways they did. What would you say they would say are the mistakes they learned from? Hmm. Well, I think my mom uh, has talked about when they, the two of them finally got to go back to Haiti and spend a couple months um, working as volunteers with Mercy Corps doing a stove project uh, in the Artibonite. And they were living really as part of the community. They'd have dinners in people's homes and they were working collaboratively building these fuel efficient stoves using mud and organic material and um mom's crayol finally got good like where she could be like joke around with people and and hear people's stories and she's talked about how she wished that when we were younger as little kids we'd done that instead of barricading ourselves on these compounds um, that were so isolated from the Haitian community and so um, separate. You know, it's interesting because I know that later you did a project of oral history in Portland with the Boise neighborhood. And you said something really interesting about the quality of listening. <laughs> yes. um, and the way in which we listen determines the stories that we will be told. Yeah. Yeah. If we are, and I would, I did this exercise with the kids. We actually got to come to KBU and did a, a taping with the kids that I'd done that oral history project with. And so there were third graders and then high schoolers. And the third graders were hilarious and wonderful. Um, we'd talk about well, like, how do you know when somebody's not listening? And they're like, raise their hand. Ooh, 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 can I show you? Can I show you? <laughs> it's like, well, yes. <laughs> and now can you show me what it looks like when someone is listening? How do you tell? And they were really observant. Of course they knew. I mean, babies know when we're listening or when we're tuned into them or not. They know very quickly. We're, I think we're really instinctively aware as humans of when someone's giving us their full attention or not. And if someone's not giving you their full attention, they don't, they're not earning the true stories, the, the complex, layered, full of doubt, full of honesty stories. But 
when we can offer that to each other, to really, truly listen, and that the role of the listener in that moment isn't to come up with the next clever thing to say. Uh, it's not like a conversation where you're trying to, you know, cocktail party, be smart and clever. It's really just about hearing the other person's story uh, and reflecting it back to them in the way that, you know, they might mention something early in the conversation, and then later there's the opportunity to say, well, now... That thing that you mentioned earlier, is that connected, would you say, to this thing that happened later in your life? And to let them make that connection and observe out loud and perhaps discover out loud in front of you, that's a, a, an amazing experience to watch someone telling their own story whole. And perhaps it's an interesting answer to the question of Perhaps I can make a difference, mm. which you said begins the story. Hmm. That maybe the listening is the difference that we can make. Yeah, boy, there's a lot of listening to be done, especially as a white person. The listening to the harm that I have been even unwittingly part of feels really important. And in those moments, it's so important not to be defensive or to say, oh, well, let me explain what I meant to do or say, what my intention was. Um, intention's really irrelevant. <laughs> um, I mean, it maybe it's part of a conversation later, but, but listening is very, very, very important. So one last question. In an essay you write, beauty was a luxury as a missionary kid that I had been taught to mistrust. It could not save anyone. <laughs> and yet, when I was reading your book, you wrote about the incredible beauty in Haiti. And it seemed that beauty also infused all of your descriptions of your family, of the difficulties, of the difficulties even of colonialism. So I wonder if beauty you think saved you. I, I do, absolutely. Um, I think that I, I chose that moment of me as a 14 or 15-year-old um, really turning towards beauty in this way that really, yes, it saved me. <laughs> I think Mary Oliver has a line about, I would almost say that beauty saves me and daily. And I think that it makes the pain bearable. It makes, um, you know, writing this book was not easy. And there were times it felt like, particularly for traumatic events that I went back to face, um, that it's like at that moment when I had shut that door, I'd shut it for good reason. I couldn't face at that moment the fullness of, of what I'd witnessed or been part of. And to reopen that door, it's very heavy. It's, sometimes it's very overwhelming. And I think that finding the beauty threaded through pain, the, the loss, the, the recognition of all the brokenness that came, that still comes with colonization. I, 
And yet that they're like Haiti now is by some estimates has only 2% of its tree cover remaining. That's profound deforestation and that's directly a legacy of colonization. And yet what remains is so beautiful and so worth protecting and worth celebrating. And I think that sometimes about where we're headed as a planet, I worry about our climate, uh, fires, hurricanes, floods, all of this, this earth that holds all of us. And when I think of what we're poised to lose and what we're already losing, it's like we can't, how do you hold that? Um, but what we, what we have now and what will remain is still beautiful and still worth being here for, I guess. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. I am Suzanne Legrand, and this is Disobedient Femmes. For more interviews with women writers, artists, and activists, please subscribe to Disobedient Femmes or visit disobedientfems.com. Get up, get up. <laughs>